Although the characters we discuss are fictional, the challenges people face every day are not. The information we provide in this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you are struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help. Thanks for listening and welcome to the Jedi Council Podcast, where we explore mental health in your favorite fictional characters. Hey folks, welcome back to the next episode of the Jedi Council Podcast. This is your uh, graduate student still getting closer, though, by the day to no longer graduate student co-host Brandon Saxton. And your associate professor co-host Katie Gordon. How are you doing today, Katie? I'm doing well. I've missed podcasting. You and I have both had some stuff come up, so it's been a little bit of a hiatus between our last episode and this one, and I'm also super excited about our guest today. How are you doing? Yeah, doing good, too. Also, I've missed podcasting. Uh, You know, I I miss the days where it was a good, solid episode every week. We've gotten closer now, I think, to probably an episode every month or a few weeks, but you know what? That just means more time to to crank up the quality, (laughs) quality over quantity. No, but it has been a really weirdly busy time for both of us, and I'm hoping to transition back to uh, our regularly scheduled programming. Today we have Dr. Joshua Grubbs, who's an assistant professor of clinical psychology, and he's going to talk to us about some of the fascinating scientific research he's been doing on personality, addiction, and religion. How are you doing today, Josh? I am doing great, guys. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's our pleasure. Yeah, we're super excited about it. And one area that we kind of thought we'd start is just by asking you about your personal story. How did you get into clinical psychology and maybe how did you get into the specific kind of research areas that you're focusing on now? Yeah, um, so I was kind of weird as uh, I guess my trajectory into psychology is a little little different than some stories. Essentially, you know, I grew up kind of conservative home, didn't know much about psychology or any of the social sciences, and my brother went off to college. He was two years older than me, and we were big rivals um, in all of the brotherly ways. And so um, he was 17 and I was 15. He came back during his first semester, uh, and he's like, Josh, I figured out what's wrong with you. (laughs) What does that mean? He goes like, well, I've I've been... you know, I've been reading in my psychology one on one textbook, and you're a narcissist. Oh uh, my gosh! <laughs> like, wait, wait, wait a minute. Now, what? What do you mean I'm a narcissist? And so he shows me his, his book, and during that visit, like I kind of read a little bit of it. He had homework; I didn't read much of it, and I didn't think much of it. Um, but during the holiday break, he you know left the textbook at home, didn't bring it back to college, and I read it, and I realized I actually really like this stuff, and so I. Um, started taking classes at the local community college while I was still a high school school student. Um, took I think three or four psychology classes there as a high school student. And I came in as a freshman in college as a psych major. At the time, I thought, like, yeah, I really want to do this um, clinical psychology thing. I want to be a therapist. That would be so cool. I'll read people's minds. I'll do the <laughs> best. Um, and then over my time in college, I realized, you know, one, that's not what clinical psychology is. And two, there's this thing called research. And I, I just kind of fell in love with it. I was able to kind of publish my first paper as an undergraduate, which was a, a stroke of really weird luck. And even to this day, when I read that paper, I'm like, man, that thing is garbage. But somehow it got in. Um, and then I, I got into grad school and was into a clinical psych PhD program at Case Western Reserve. Um, 
And I thought, still thought like this will be great. I'll learn how to do the therapy and the research. And I um, saw my first client and was like, this is great. I want to do research, only research, really liberal. <laughs> I never want to do research. Um, and so, you know, I mean, clinical psychology, we do a lot of training. And so I, I'm just now um, at the licensure point after several thousand hours of training and therapy um, to get to the point of getting my license and then moving on to doing research full time. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. That's that's really interesting. Is there anything specific that brought you to study personality, addiction, and religion? Was it the fact that your brother said you were a narcissist that got you interested in personality? Interestingly, if you um, if you look at my publication, history and personality, I talk about personality broadly. Really, the expertise I have there is on narcissism. That's that's what I've published the most on, specifically on psychological entitlement or trait entitlement, as, which is a facet of narcissism. So undoubtedly, that's where that stems back to. He said it then. I found it fascinating. Um, and here we are, you know, 15 years later, and I'm still enjoying it. Uh, my other area of research, which I'm sure we'll talk more about, um, is I, I do a lot of publishing in the behavioral addiction realm, specifically around uh, self-reported pornography addiction or people – reporting a addiction to pornography and you'll notice that i kind of word that in an awkward way i don't say porn addiction or people being addicted to porn i talk about it in terms of self-report or self-perception and we'll discuss more of those reasons later on i'm sure but what that came out of was being in college so i grew up in an extremely i said you know somewhat conservative home i grew up in an extremely conservative home my father was a southern baptist minister we were homeschooled I went to an evangelical Christian university for my undergraduate. And I remember very much during my adolescence and particularly in college how much emphasis there was on the epidemic of pornography addiction that was destroying everything. Um, And at that time, I mean, I was largely skeptical just because they talked about how it was ruining everything and, and destroying relationships and marriages and people's lives. And even then I was like, well, okay, like you're seeing that, but I'm not actually seeing it. But yet there was all of these support groups filled with men, most often, sometimes women, uh, dealing with porn addiction and wanting to stop their porn addiction. And what they meant by that was literally they were viewing pornography I mean, this was 2006, 2010, so internet was decent then, and they were talking about viewing pornography once every couple of weeks, maybe at the top end, some people were viewing pornography once a week, Um, and it was this addiction that was ruining their lives, and I kind of thought like, huh, this doesn't, something just doesn't quite add up here. Which is what ultimately led to the line of research that I've kind of developed since then. Um, just just personal experiences and seeing, and that has led into more behavioral addiction research. And now I do gambling research and all of uh, kind of all of the behavioral things. Um, but that's where it started. Oh, okay. You know that's interesting because over the years teaching abnormal psychology for ten years, I've had students ask about addiction to pornography, and often when I ask. Um, what they're talking about it is usually, you know, they're talking about they're asking for a friend or something like that. And it is usually, like you said, something like once every two weeks or once every month or something like that. Mm-hmm. And yet they'll talk about kind of 12-step type um, treatment groups 
for it. And so it, it's okay. interesting to hear you you study it from that perspective of the self-perception aspect of that. Yes, I mean, for sure. That's it, There are, I mean, 12-step treatment groups, there are large networks of support groups, treatment groups, private treatment facilities, um, subscription-based internet treatment regimens to, to treat pornography addiction. It's a very interesting industry. Yeah, and so um, overall, the behavioral addictions, you mentioned several others, are things that you call compulsive behavior patterns. It seems like in contrast to studying substance use based addictions, that that would have some particular challenges because often they're not what we think of in terms of, you know, physiological dependence. Um, what what kind of challenges have you faced studying those types of behavioral addictions? So, in general, so there's challenges that face the entire field, that the entire field is dealing with in me- measuring these things and defining it. And then there's the, the personal challenges and how I go about it. So, so at the field level, you know, there has been an ongoing debate for decades as to whether or not a behavior can truly be described as an addiction. Is what we're describing literally an addiction in the classical sense of alcoholism or opioid dependence or something like that? Or is it something else? So this debate raged on for a very long time around gambling disorder, which for years was known as problem and pathological gambling, which was considered an impulse control disorder, which was based on the idea that you're having trouble regulating your impulses, not that you're literally dependent or hooked on this behavior pattern. As the research in that domain, gambling is extensively well-researched compared to other behavioral addictions. And in the gambling domain, as it's developed over time, it began more and more to be recognized as an addiction rather than as an impulse control disorder. There was an acknowledgement of some of the neurological changes, some of the neurotransmitter um, effects that were associated with it, as well as the conditioning effects that are associated with a lot of types of gambling. And so I I believe it was with the DSM-5 that they actually moved gambling from the impulse control disorders over to the addictive disorders. And I believe the ICD-10 actually did it before that. Um, so in that regard, that's widely recognized as an addiction, compulsive sexual behavior disorder, which was just included this year in the ICD 11, um, is not considered an addiction. It's an impulse control disorder. All of this is really weird and complicated when you're trying to talk to people about it though. Cause it's like, well, it's, is it an addiction or is it not an addiction is an impulse control disorder. And so I think that there's kind of two different ways that we have to think about it. Um, at the academic clinical research level, we have to care about this stuff. We have to care about how we exactly classify, categorize, and organize these disorders. And at the practical level, there's just this piece of, well, like, are you out of control? Like, are you doing this thing repeatedly that you're out of control in? And is that messing your life up? And if that's the case, like, you can use the word addiction. I might not as a researcher, but if calling it an addiction is useful to you as a person, in dealing with this and coping with this and learning how to change and regulate it, then we can, we can work with that. So, I mean, that's the professional side. And the personal side, I actually, in my research at least, really am less interested in whether or not it's really an addiction 
And I'm a lot more interested in whether or not the person, you, that are dealing with the behavior, think it's an addiction. That's why I use terms like self-reported or self-perceived or things like that. Because I want to know, do you think your behavior is an addiction, regardless of whether or not the scientific community thinks that it is or not? Wow, that's really interesting, Josh. Yeah, I, I just kind of extending that kind of line of thought and thinking about some of these um, you know, self-reported addictions. When you're looking at that, what are the different factors that you've found that contribute to whether or not people kind of develop or perceive these types of um, compulsions or addiction kind of perceptions? So it, it actually varies by behavior, which is um, perhaps evidence that the addiction framework is not ideal for some behaviors. So what I mean by that is talking to someone who's gambling to the point that we would label it as gambling disorder or an addiction, um, there tend to be pretty clear hallmarks, like not just they feel out of control. Oftentimes they do. But there's also very objective criteria. They are lying to their partners. They are hiding their gambling wins and losses. They are stealing money from people to support their habit. They're getting fired from their job. They're committing illegal acts. They're obsessed with this behavior all of the time. Um, you know, I've worked clinically with a lot of gamblers over the years. And, you know, it's not some like, well, I feel bad because I went to the casino twice last month and I lost $200. It's more of, I've been in the casino six of the past seven days for 14 hours a day and I'm down $7,000 this week alone. Um, I mean, I, the type of real concrete behavioral dysregulation um, is apparent there. And that tends to be how people know they have a problem because they look at their life and everything's in shambles and it's clear what the reason is. Now, when we jump over to sexual behaviors, there's a clear split that we see both clinically um, and in research literature where a large number of people that come in saying that their sexuality is out of control legitimately do have sexuality that's out of control. They're engaging in unsafe sexual practices. They're hooking up with multiple partners um, sometimes a day. And, you know, if if that's your game and it's working fine for you, that's probably not an addiction. But when you're doing this to the point that you're getting fired from jobs or that you've, you know, contracted multiple STDs or that you're paying for sex on a regular basis in a way that is, financially depriving you or you're being unfaithful to a spouse repeatedly without any regard for whether or not that's benefit, I mean, whether or not they're okay with it. Um, those kind of things that there is a concrete set of behaviors that we would, would characterize that. And that even could extend even to pornography use where, you know, if you're spending six hours, seven hours a day uh, looking at porn, it's probably safe to say that that's impacting your life negatively. And that might be an out-of-control behavior pattern. So that, that's, that's one thing that we look at. But the reality is, is there seems to be, with sexuality in particular, and it's been identified in quite a few different literatures, not just my own work, that there's a number of people that are in basically considering themselves to be addicted. They'll say that they're out of control. They'll say that they feel out of control. But their behavior is very rare. You know, I'm... I am addicted to porn, and I'm viewing it once every two weeks. I'm 
addicted to sex. You know, once every few months, I end up breaking down and going to a strip club. I don't do anything, but I go and I, you know, I'm addicted to sex. And this is that an addiction? I, I don't know. I, that doesn't seem to be quite in the same category. Um, so it gets a little bit more complicated with sex. Um, and that's probably because sexuality is an incredibly morally charged subject. I mean, everything is morally charged to some extent or another, but but sex tends to take the cake there. Yeah, that's a great point. I've I can recall having some past clinical experiences with people who were con- concerned about how much they're masturbating or whether they're masturbating at all. And clearly, this you know, when we talked about it, it's something that they were often judging against what their religious beliefs were, or some way that they were raised, and even though it would be considered uh, healthy, normative level behavior by most sexual health organizations, for them it was particularly distressing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you do, what do you kind of do when those types of people might present with issues where you've kind of evaluated it and it seems like most of the distress is coming from a mismatch of their values? Well, you know, at the end of the day, as a therapist, I identify mostly with kind of motivational interviewing and acceptance and commitment therapy traditions, and I believe in helping clients live consistent with their values, right? So if a client's values are to maintain some sort of sexual standard that is conservative, but not necessarily restrictive in an unhealthy way, I'm going to try to help them do that. So, you know, if you're you're someone who genuinely thinks that viewing pornography is morally wrong, and that's a true moral belief of you, a value of yours, I will help work with you as a therapist in achieving that behavior while also probably working a little bit on the cognitive interpretations on lapses in that. Because just as much as we can say, I want to help you become the person you want to be, I want to help you live consistent with the values that you do have, I can also say that when you fall short of a value, getting depressed, anxious, guilty, self-loathing in response to that is not going to get you closer to the value. It's just going to get you further away. So let's kind of take this dual approach of accepting imperfections while striving for the values that you have. So that, that's what I tend to take that approach with people that seem to be more in this kind of morally driven sense of addiction. Okay, that's... That's helpful, and I imagine that um, having your background and personal experience as well as studying it academically, religion and spirituality must help to connect with clients dealing with those dilemmas. It, it does. Um, I tend to understand the language a lot better. I tend to understand what the value set is. There has, there, I don't, frankly, I don't really react to it, you know, oftentimes when I'm working with training therapists, they'll say they, there's just a shock when they hear some of these more conservative sexual ethics as if they, they didn't realize that it was, you know, real people had those beliefs. And it's like, oh, no, that's a pretty standard one. Um, and so, you know, no masturbation, no porn, no, no this, no that. That's pretty standard stuff that I'm used to hearing. And so it helps to, to connect with the client where they are and validate what they're experiencing while also, you know, establishing a more healthy way of thinking and behaving. So I'm kind of wondering beyond, um, you know, the the motivational interviewing kind of approach or the acceptance commitment therapy, what other kind of treatment approaches seem to kind of help with these issues when there are kind of clear behavioral problems that people are experiencing? So when we get into the behavioral problems, the, you know, clear dysregulation compulsive behaviors, 
um, both sexuality and gambling. Um, you know, well, motivational interviewing and, and acceptance commitment therapy actually are the, the two first run, uh, kind of go to therapies at this point. So, I mean, motivational interviewing was developed out of addiction therapy. And although I think it extends well beyond addiction and, you know, I'm very passionate about it as a theoretical, well, as a, as a framework for approaching clients, um, I, I think that it works particularly well with addiction, um, and dysregulated or behavior change in general. Um, acceptance and commitment therapy, there have been some trials on that with compulsive sexuality with, you know, generally positive results. The only other one that really comes to mind with a good evidentiary basis for it is mindfulness-based relapse prevention. Uh, although the evidence, I mean, there is evidence basis. I wouldn't, good may be too strong a statement, but there is some evidence there, and I know that there are trials in development now for more of that, particularly with gambling. Um, in the community, there's a lot of active recovery groups. There's, you know, Gamblers Anonymous. There's Sexaholics Anonymous. Uh, I have very mixed feelings about 12 Steps programs because they're so... Whether or not a 12-step program is a truly healthy experience for the people in it is variable from site to site. Um, and it depends on the people kind of executing it. So I have mixed feelings on it, but some people really do enjoy it. And then there's other things like Smart Recovery or Celebrate Recovery, which are... Um, not necessarily 12-step programs, but still that community-based rehabilitation program sort of thing. So uh, for listeners who might not be familiar with acceptance and commitment therapy and motivational interviewing, how do those approaches differ from a 12-step approach? Right, so a 12-step approach takes a very formulaic approach to recovery uh, that has worked for millions of people. So it's not to say that it doesn't work. It's also failed millions of people. It's, it's Again, it's a mixed bag. But it essentially, it takes the idea that here are the 12 steps that you must process through to adequately recover, and this is how we proceed through it. There isn't room for a lot of deviation, and depending on where you participate, there may be a lot of kind of dogmatic or even religiously um, religious-based adherence to it, where the system itself, the steps themselves, the, becomes almost a, a fundamentalist-type approach to it, um, which again, in some cases works very well for people, in some cases it doesn't. Uh, motivational interviewing was born almost as a direct reaction to the abrasive and dogmatic uh, addiction recovery approaches uh, of the 1970s and before then. And, and Bill Miller, who was the founder of um, motivational interviewing, kind of saw that these programs weren't working and decided decided to try just motivating clients to change, you know, instead of yelling at them, instead of shaming them, instead of telling them they have to change. Well, what, what, what happens if we just talk to them and get them to talk about why they want to change? And this is how motivational interviewing works is you get your clients to talk about the reasons they want to change because the more they talk about why they want to change, the more they want to change and the more they want to change, the more they talk about wanting to change. And it builds this positive momentum that then lays the groundwork, this deep foundation of genuine desire to change that you can then scaffold the structure off of. And so when I know that you're engaged as a client and you really want this and we've worked together to build up that motivation to want this, then it's easier for you to hear me when I say, okay, so what happens if maybe we take this out of your life and we add this in? Because making that change is going to be easier because the motivation is there. So that's 
motivational interviewing, it does rely, rely a lot on values and using, you know, figuring out what your client's values are and figuring out how this behavior you want to change is getting in the way of those values and using that to build motivation. Um, acceptance and commitment therapy also relies on values and using those values to help dr- guide and direct change. But acceptance commitment therapy takes a bit more holistic approach to the whole, the whole person and really focuses on this idea that we spend too much of our time in life trying to control or avoid negative emotional experiences or painful emotional stimuli or things that have caused us pain. And by trying to avoid and control them, we actually create more suffering in our lives. And so what we need to do is accept the things that hurt us and, it, and choose to act in a way that is consistent with our values. So you accept what you're experiencing while acting in a way that's more consistent with your values. And that's a really Cliff Notes version. It's a lot more complicated than that. But both of those kind of help clients. You know, when I'm dealing actually with clients dealing with these kind of addictions, we tend to start with motivational interviewing and then implement ACT after that, um, ACT, or Acceptance Commitment Therapy. Um, Because they kind of, I I find that they work well together and they build this kind of holistic structure of helping clients make the behavioral change that they want to make, stay motivated to change, and accept their shortcomings along the way, which helps, you know, move them forward. Thanks for that explanation. That's very helpful. And we'll also link um, to uh, information about both of those types of therapeutic strategies for our listeners who want to listen to some more. Another fascinating area of yours that we've kind of touched on a little bit because it is interwoven with your other areas of research is religion and spirituality. And I thought I'd shift the focus a bit now to ask about what types of religious issues you see people seeking therapy for that they're struggling with. So, you know, therapeutically, I've done some work in religion. Most... uh, I, I've done a fair bit, actually. Uh, you know, I do actually a fair bit of research with it, too. I tend to focus on religious and spiritual struggles, or basically when religion creates difficulty in individuals' lives. This can be things like feeling angry at God, or feeling angry at religious others, or feeling as if you have fa- you failed morally and things like that. And I've seen all of those in therapy. I mean, I think, frankly... Dealing with religious and spiritual issues in therapy, my take on it is that good therapy is good therapy. And that means that you empathically connect with your client where they are. You understand what they're dealing with. You find out what matters to them. And you work together to help them live the life that they want to live, provided that it's obviously a healthy life. You know, if the life that they want to live is doing heroin, perhaps we want to adjust that. But in general... Um, you know, if it's just about empathically connecting with their struggles, helping them develop adaptive, healthy coping mechanisms and, and live the life that they're looking to live. Okay. Well, that's, that's helpful. And I think that also, I think assures people who are unsure about whether they're going to therapy about how much therapists are really trying to tailor and empathize and find things that fit with them. Personally, it's not kind of a one-size-fits-all situation at all. No, 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 not at all. I, I mean, there are, there's been a lot of work looking at this. Like, what is what does Christian integrated, you know, cognitive behavior therapy for depression do versus regular? What is it, you know, um, Muslim integrated? There's a, quite a few of these different 
kind of protocols that have looked at these in very controlled ways, and we find that the results are almost identical whether it's religiously integrated or not. What matters is that clients feel comfortable being themselves and expressing themselves in therapy. So what a client needs to be able to do is know that if they're talking about their relationship with God, that you're not going to freak out and be like, oh, are you schizophrenic, man? Um, that you're going to actually connect with them and and let them let them feel, I guess, help them feel like they are able to express themselves in an open and genuine way with you and that you will be open and genuine with them as their therapist and work together towards a better future. And so that, I mean, that's regardless of whether they're religious or not. But if you apply that to religious clients, they tend to respond well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It, it seems like it would be easier to trust someone who's really trying to understand your perspective fully and affirming their values. And have you ever worked with, do you ever end up communicating with their with clergy members or is there any, has there been any intersection of that in your work? Um, I, I've done a bit talking with clergy members, um, um, particularly actually around the sexuality, the compulsive sexuality stuff, um, mixed experiences um so those that are genuinely interested in connecting with their their parishioners or their congregation members and helping them alleviate suffering they tend to approach me very much with this idea of like just talk to me about what you know and what i can do to help as a, as a clergyman occasionally i i get people approaching me that believe that i'm some sort of pro pornography addict um or pro pornography advocate um that because my research suggests some things that have been controversial and so I'll, i get these uh, less than pleasant conversations occasionally based on that um those people don't tend to ask for my input on how to help their their congregations though so in general when i'm approached about it yeah it's, it's actually very helpful we actually have interesting dialogues and I, I talk about you know just supporting health and well-being and like as a clergyman you know obviously i expect you to have some morals and rules that you're implementing in their lives but also or are encouraging them to implement in their life which is not what i would do as a therapist but you, you know in your role that makes sense but also in your role you're there to listen and and empathize with them as well and that's going to make a difference and so instead of you know Telling someone you looked at porn twice, you're an addict, or you're angry at God and that's wrong, or that you maybe if you send less, you wouldn't be sick, or things like that. All horror stories that I've actually heard from clergymen. Um, if you just sit there and connect with people and talk to them and empathize with them and connect with them on a deep, emotionally, even spiritual level, if you will, that's going to make a lot more positive impact in their lives. We just we know this from the research. So I've got to ask you, what is the the um, controversial or provocative <laughs> part of your research that you're most often contacted about? Um, so ever since I've been publishing on pornography use, so I focus on self-reported pornography addiction quite a bit. And what we consistently find in non-clinical samples, so if you take population surveys, I've done nationally representative samples, I've done undergraduate samples, I've done online convenience samples. We've done all sorts of different sampling techniques of people in the general community. And you ask them, hey, do you think you're addicted to pornography? Obviously using some scales that get at that, some measures that assess that. The best predictor consistently, I mean, over the top, across studies, across time, the best predictor of whether or not you think you're addicted to pornography 
is whether or not you think pornography use is morally wrong. And conversely, the best predictor of whether or not you think pornography use is morally wrong is religious belief. So my research kind of clearly suggests both using longitudinal designs and, like I said, national representative samples and all this other stuff that we've done, that religious people are more likely – let's back up. Religious people are less likely to use porn, and if they do, even infrequently, they are so much more likely to say that they're addicted to it, which doesn't kind of make sense. It, at, on its face, like what? Wait, what? You use it, you use it less, but you're more likely to be addicted. That doesn't make sense, and it suggests that the self perception might not be accurate. Um, and what we've kind of shown is that it seems to be a lot of guilt and shame going on. This moral incongruence, this discrepancy between your moral beliefs and your actual behaviors, seems to be driving this feeling of addiction. Right? That I think in the scientific community has actually been pretty well received. It, it helps give nuance to a disorder, and we always want that. When we're, we're trying to debut diagnoses or trying them out, we, we want nuance. We want good rule-outs. We want to be able to separate the people that look like it from the people that actually look like it and have it. At the same time, there's, you know, this is part of diagnosing anything in psychology or in medicine. You have to have nuance to what you're doing. So in the scientific community, the medical community, um, this research has been very well received, um, and I, I've had a lot of success with it. Um, in the popular anti-pornography advocacy community, I've been accused very frequently of producing research that's pro-porn and saying that addiction is not real and saying that pornography addiction is, a, is made up and that people that are saying that they're addicts are crazy and guilt-ridden, repressed religious people, and, and putting words in my mouth that I've never said. Um, I often get accused of being someone that doesn't believe in pornography addiction, if you will, um, which is just not true. Um, and so those anti-pornography advocacy communities, there's a lot of them, but a lot of them very much are tightly interwoven with religious communities uh, and religious anti-pornography sentiments. And because of that, you know, a lot of people write a lot of web pages saying a lot of lies about my work. Um, I mean, I've got I've got a running total, a couple of dozen now. I mean, full blown websites with multiple pages set up just to talking about how disingenuous and manipulative and deceptive Doctor Joshua Grubbs is. Um, so it's interesting. I mean, like I'm used to it now. I don't really. It doesn't bother me. The first time. First time it came, it was when I was still a you know like a second or a third year graduate student, and it was really jarring. But um, at this point, it's it's you can set my watch by publish a paper and new web page up in three days, kind of thing. So it's and it's so 180 degrees away from your actual perspective on the issue, based on everything that you've said up until yeah. this point on the interview. That it's remarkable. I you know I I see what you're saying though. It seems like. Um, and communities that are looking at nuanced types of things, why your position would be so, well, your research, frankly, just what you found empirically would be welcome, but uh, any vision of that as maybe deterring from people who are anti-pornography or something like that, I could see why they would take a less nuanced view or why they would not welcome that. Right. I mean, what I, what I think it comes down to is that, you know, sexual behaviors uh, – are extremely morally charged topics. People don't tend, um, people that have opinions about sexuality tend to have strong ones. And if you counter a strongly held narrative or a strongly held opinion, you get blowback. 
and and that's fine. I mean, again, to date, I've done you know the scientific community where where my work um, needs to be successful has, has gone well, and that it's translated into clinical applications as well. Um, and based in part on the research that we've done um, when the, the World Health Organization developed the International Classification for Diseases 11, and they included this new diagnosis of compulsive sexual behavior disorder, brand new diagnosis, they specifically note that a rule out is the distress or an impairment in a person's life associated with this behavior can't be due just to morality and religiously based shame and guilt. Um, which is based on the work that I've done. Like, you know, this research influences that, and which is what, what I wanted it to do, where we're adding nuance to a, you know, international diagnostic classification system that will allow the people that need help to get the help they need. It will help us screen for people that probably do need help, but maybe not the same kind of help. I'm glad you've persisted despite having some nasty websites and web pages <laughs> written about you, because it's really important work. So thanks for doing that. I, I enjoy it. So, Josh, another topic that we wanted to touch on before we conclude today is your involvement in the open science movement. And I'm just wondering, for our listeners who maybe aren't familiar, can you tell them um, kind of what that movement is about and why you have decided to be a part of that? Yeah. Um, so if you follow psychology, um, and it's actually getting to the point, even if you don't follow psychology, you, you might have noticed that over the past several years, psychology has been dealing with some credibility issues. And, and what that basically comes down to is that um, a large percentage, especially in social psychology, um, other fields as well in psychology, but especially in social psychology, we've documented this trend where at least half of the published research does not replicate. So when we try to do it again, we don't find the same things, which suggests, perhaps, that maybe the original research wasn't conducted in the most rigorous and transparent way. And so open science movement, um, or transparency movement, or reproducibility movement, or whatever you want to call it, is not about you know anything more than trying to enhance the credibility of our field. And one of the easiest ways to enhance credibility, right, is just to be open and honest about what you're doing. You know, these are the measures that I'm going to use in this study. This is how I presented it. This is the data I used. This is how I analyzed the data. And from start to finish, you, you have this transparent process that any other scientist out there can look at and say, hey, I'm going to try that for myself. Um, and if you did it transparently and it does not replicate then perhaps, you know, there were issues with it, um, perhaps not. But more often than not, when you're doing things transparently, you try to do things at a more rigorous level anyway because you know people can check it. When you know people can check it, you do better work. And so it kind of builds this more positive inertia of, like, I know that people can scrutinize every detail of what I'm doing, so I'm going to make sure that every detail is where I want it to be. Um, so, I mean, that's the, the broad basis for it. I'm actually interested in it as a clinical psychologist because I think that clinical psychology has just as many problems as social, but that we've done a uh, much poorer job of evaluating ourselves. In social psychology, there are literally hundreds of psychologists now who are 
willing to critique their own field and consider that maybe their research isn't solid. But clinicals only got a handful that are willing to do that right now. And and I'm passionate about this because it's uh, this is not to disparage social psychology, but if social psychologists are wrong, then a bunch of interesting TED Talks are wrong and a few self-help books probably won't help you. If clinical psychology is wrong, we are arguably cons- committing insurance fraud, we're making people less healthy, and we are putting people at direct risk because we claim that we're helping people's health and saving their lives. And if we're wrong, that's kind of a big deal. Um, so that's just kind of my role in it. As I don't really have like a formal role more than just kind of advocating for it and, and, and talking about it and encouraging it and trying to be open and transparent in my own work because I think the stakes are so much higher for us. I mean, we're, we are, you know, even though we're an academic field, we're also a medical field, and all of the risk associated with medicine um, pretty much apply to us too. And so the cost of us getting it wrong is actual human lives. And, and I think that that matters and we need to take what we do a little bit more seriously because of that. Yeah. Well, maybe just to wrap up, uh, what we like to commonly do is ask people if there are any particularly good or bad fictional depictions of the phenomena that they study. So I'm wondering, do you have any suggestions or suggestions for things to avoid for our listeners? Yeah. So most popular media perceptions about um, sex addiction aren't the greatest. Um, and just in general, if it's on, probably wrong. Um, but no, um, the uh, Michael Fassbender starred in a movie called Shame. It doesn't get everything right, but it's most. Um, it's it's a heavy it's a heavy watch. Um, it's it's very adult themed in some ways because it's about a man with sex addiction. Um, but it, it's a better look at it than s- many other ones that I've seen. Um, gambling addiction is often, it's not often a topic in media that I could point you to, because we often see gambling put, portrayed as a very glamorous thing, um, when the reality is that, you know, that's not the face, I mean, that's the face of the, the weekend trip in Vegas, but that's not the face of what gambling addiction looks like. It's a much just sadder, harder thing to read. And so media portrayals, I don't know. Um, there is a book, though. Um, I think, let me just see here. The name of the book is Addicti- Addiction by Design, um, which is a nice, a popular book. It's nonfiction, but very accessible read. Um, I recommend it to people all the time. But it's about how machine gambling is designed to foster addiction um so addiction by design is the name of that book um and it's a, a really excellent read for getting kind of a a grip on what's going on oh that's great we'll we'll link to that and the the only gambling movie that i thought of but i haven't seen it in a long time and it's older is rounders i don't know if you've seen that because it's a pretty old film i don't i i have not seen that one i've heard mixed reviews i mean like see when i think like gambling movies i'm thinking like oceans 11 mm-hmm. and 12 13 and eight, and that's not really a gambling movie. It's a, you know, it's an action, you know, crime drama. Yeah. So, yeah, Rounders. That's I had a supervisor that used to talk about it. She would reference it with the gamblers, and I frankly, um, I think her perspective was that it glamorized a bit, but that there were aspects of it that rang true with most of the clients with gambling issues. Okay, that's good to know. I haven't watched it since I have had any 
um, graduate training in clinical psychology, so my perspective of it probably would be different now. I mean, the main character definitely loses things for gambling, but there is a pretty clear glamorized aspect of it, too, so that might be something to rewatch. What about narcissism? Any fictional depictions of that? <laughs> there, I mean, the, we, we don't really need to look into the fiction anymore um, to see that very <laughs> publicly displayed, um, but uh, it, it gets... It's a feature in a lot of movies. I mean, from both superhero movies, like you can make the argument that both, in, say, the Marvel's extended universe, that both Loki and Thor are narcissistic. Actually, one of my favorite examples of narcissism in popular media is Moana, um, the character of Maui <laughs> in Moana. Raging narcissist. Um, it, which is interesting. He presents in a very grandiose way, but then has a tragic, vulnerable backstory and these things. So, so that's very popular. Um, you know, I think narcissism, people have a better eye for what it is and what it isn't just naturally. And that and it happens that way with quite a few personality traits. But, like, it's pretty easy to say who is the very arrogant, self-aggrandizing person that's creating toxicity in their life because of it. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and for your time today. I, I've learned a lot from this. And I'm excited to share this with our listeners um, do you have any closing thoughts or take-home messages for listeners who are tuning in? You know, um, the big take-home I would have about any area of addiction research, because it's a very controversial field with video game addiction, sex addiction, all of these other addictions, is always be skeptical of what you're hearing. Because even us, even those of us that are scientists, um, we all kind of have some agendas that we're interested for taking forward. Um, and although we try to be unbiased and rigorous as scientists, uh, you know, we all, always have an angle that we're playing. But more than that, in the public community, everyone that's got a very strong opinion on something has a very strong um, agenda that they're trying to push. And it doesn't mean that the agenda is wrong, but you just got to be skeptical. So when you hear that, you know, 60% of teens are addicted to Instagram, that's probably not true. Be skeptical. And when you hear that so many people are addicted to porn, that's probably not true. Let's be skeptical. If anything else, I would say, just when you hear the stats, when you hear the crazy trumped up claims, just take some time to be skeptical and think about it critically before you just assume that it's true. Okay. That's fantastic. So maybe just in closing, Josh, where can people find, uh, find you and find your work? Well, so I am very, very easily accessible on Twitter at Joshua Grubbs PhD, um, all together, you know, at Joshua Grubbs PhD. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also have a website, Joshua Grubbs PhD. Um, and either one of those are the best ways you can contact me typically through my website if you're interested. Great. I highly recommend following Josh on Twitter. He's yeah. one of my favorite follows. <laughs> me too. He's an excellent <laughs> tweeter, good mix of science, humor, Family, all kinds of it's good just stuff a in there. It's just a complete package. It really is. It's a Twitter package. Yeah. It really is. Uh, that's, I try. I, I was trying to explain that to my wife earlier. She didn't really buy it, but, you know, I tried. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Josh, and thank you to everyone who listened in today. Thank you for listening to the Jedi Council Podcast, a member of the Geek Therapy Podcast Network. You can find more information about our podcast or blog at www.jedi-council.com. If you would like to support the Jedi Council Podcast, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Jedi Council. The views expressed on this podcast are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Additionally, this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. 
If you're struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help.